What's up guys, Will Witt here. Obviously not at the studio, I am at my home in Denver, Colorado for Christmas vacation. So this is a pre-recorded episode and we have some interviews for you today. One with Brett Mauser, a whistleblower, one with Raheem Kassam from National Pulse, and one with Vivek Ramaswamy, the author of Woke Inc. All really good stuff. Highly recommend you stick around and watch this and we're gonna see you guys tomorrow for Will and Amu Live. Peace. Okay, guys, welcome back. You guys constantly have questions about wokeism, particularly as it pertains to corporate America. And we have a special guest on the show to talk about that today. His name is Vivek Ramaswamy. You might know him because he is an investor as well as an entrepreneur, but now he's an author. He just wrote a book called Woke Incorporated Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. Vivek, thank you so much for being on. Glad to be here, guys. Yeah. So we actually, we had some correspondence before because, you know, we went through the same publisher for our books. Exactly. We're kind of competitors, but it's also, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's friendly together. Yeah, co-opetition. You know? Yeah, man. Yeah. But I, I read your book, uh, the audio book, actually. I do two times speed for when I'm reading the That's things. Good. It was really good, man. I was really Appreciate impressed it. with everything I read about. And you had, you had a couple lines in there, and I, I wanted to talk to you about a few of them that I thought really hit me. You had the line, you pretend to care about something more than profit or power to get more of each. And- when it comes to what your book is about, which is about woke ink, these corporations professing these these lies of wokeness to try and get more people to buy their products or to say and have this virtue out there that they really are about all these things. When you're saying behind closed doors, they don't really actually represent these values at all that they're preaching. Do you think that most of the people, the CEOs and, and leaders of these woke ink corporations, do you think they actually believe the things that they say when they come out with these 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 mandates or virtues? You know, like I think it's about 70. 30. So in 70% of the cases, I think it is inauthentic. It's a cynical arrangement. It is the use of pretending like you care, as you said, about something other than profit and power precisely to gain more of each. It's about profit and power, by the way, because in some cases it's about exerting government influence. Sometimes that makes the CEO more powerful in a way that doesn't necessarily help the company, but helps the CEO. Sometimes it helps the company and the CEO, but that's the scammy kind of woke capitalism. That's about 70% of what's going on. Okay, I think that's Goldman Sachs. I think that's in large part a lot of the financial services industry. That's the scamming kind. I think that's different than the other 30%, which is actually authentic which are leaders who say that, you know what, you only live once and I have a seat of corporate power and I'm gonna make sure that my opinion matters more than everybody else's because I can. And I started writing the book setting out to indict the first form of woke capitalism, the, the sort of scammy and authentic kind. By the time I finished the book, I, I think it was a run for its money as to whether actually the authentic kind might even be the worst kind that is really a betrayal of what American democracy is about because in a democracy, the way we settle our questions is through free speech and open debate where everyone's voice and vote counts equally. And what this new model of so-called stakeholder capitalism demands is actually that a small group of elites, because they wield market power, get to say that my opinion matters more than yours, and I'm going to use economic force to settle a question that should have been settled through free speech and open debate. So 70-30 so is the answer to your question. Right. You talk a lot, a lot about, in the book as well, the CCP, China, their ties to America. A lot of people don't know about it. They don't know how, how connected China is to a lot of our corporations, especially media corporations, especially how it goes to being bought out in the swamp of, of D.C. right now with China. Could you talk a little bit about that and how they are influencing a lot of these 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 woke diktats? Yeah, look, I'm not like some sort of puppet master behind the scenes conspiracy theorist or anything like it. 
but I truly believe that China is playing the woke capitalist game to advance its geopolitical goals. And I think a lot of people have missed the geopolitical implications of wokeness where they understand the kinks in our armor far better than we understand the kinks in their armor. And the kink in our armor, as they see it, is that in a democracy, you're actually free to engage in self-criticism. Wokeness is the embodiment of self-criticism. And they're now using that to use the voices of corporations themselves to relentlessly criticize the United States without saying a peep about actual human rights atrocities in places like China that creates a false moral equivalence between the behavior of the US and the behavior of China. That erodes our greatest geopolitical asset of all. That's not our nuclear nuclear arsenal. It is our moral standing on the global Mm -hmm. stage. So, for example, Disney might say it's not going to shoot a film in the state of Georgia if they pass an anti-abortion statute to signal their virtue to the left here at home. But they go last year to film Mulan in the Shenzhen province of China without saying a peep about the actual human rights atrocities being committed there, where there's over a million Uyghurs in concentration camps subject to forced sterilization, communist indoctrination, and worse. And in fact, at the end of the film, they thank the CCP for allowing them the privilege of filming there. You can still Mm -hmm. see that in the credits to the film. You know, the filming of Top Gun by Paramount Pictures, they decide to take off the badges of both Japan and Taiwan, the Taiwanese flags on his jacket, so much for being a maverick, right? Right. These are, this is the hypocrisy. And so if if you're a young person and you want to, do a litmus test of a company to see are they in the 70% camp or the 30% camp when it comes to making a woke proclamation, there's actually a pretty easy way to do it. See what they're doing in China. If they're supplicating to the Chinese Communist Party and lying like a lap dog, an obedient lap dog over there while they bark and bite their masters here in the United States, you kind of understand which side of the game they're on. They're on the inauthentic side. Now, if somebody actually taking a principled stand in China, so be it. But you at least know that they authentically mean it. I still have an issue with the authentic model of woke capitalism here at home, sure. but it's a very different issue than the kind of company that's really hypocritical and like a flag waving in whatever direction the wind blows on a given day. Okay. Right, it's like Tim Cook from Apple talking about China and, and or not talking about China, but talking about diversity and all this yeah, stuff. And course. then they got the the labor camps making the phones and the Actual people say, slave labor. They say, right. oh, we're going to kill ourselves. And what do they do? They put nets underneath the factory so that if people jump off, they don't die. Instead of giving these people better wages, they put nets underneath. Exactly. It's insane. Yeah, I mean, that's know? the Chinese way. And, and now you, you know, I, I don't want to get off too far off on a tangent here, but it's a little bit gauche to say this, but it's, but, but you got to speak, you know, in my opinion, you got, you got to speak your opinion of what's true. I, I've studied as an exchange student in China. I think a big part of what we miss is that the essence of modern Chinese culture shaped in the backdrop of a communist Chinese party that has actually influenced that culture heavily is sort of an attitude of nihilism, the idea that might makes right. And if they're able to exercise force over our corporations, over companies like Apple or Airbnb or BlackRock or Nike or Disney or the NBA to say that you can't do business here if you criticize us, but we can use you as an instrument to then criticize the United States, they're living out that nihilistic worldview that force makes for rightness. And that's effectively the Chinese way today. And I'm, I'm curious because a lot of people are waking up to this. They're getting educated about this and they're rejecting all corporations and companies that have anything to do with wokeism or the CCP. And what we're seeing right now is a sort of split in the economy between people who want to support these businesses and don't. Now, you've come out and said that you're somewhat against creating these two parallel economies, one for the traditionalist and one for the wokest. Uh, what do you see is going to happen in America when it comes to the economy and consumerism? Yes, so I definitely don't want to see two economies by way of like a right wing economy and a left wing economy. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. I've come around on the idea of the the important role for a more traditionalist segment of the private sector okay. and that potentially being a force for good. 
So the way I, the good version of this playing out is actually companies that step up and say, you know what? I do stand for certain basic universalist principles. The idea that as an American company, say we're one nation under God, that the content of your character trumps the color of your skin, mm -hmm. that capitalism is a great system to lift people up out of poverty. Mm -hmm. We're not going to apologize for those things. Mm -hmm. Actually, those are our beliefs as a company. It's not a Republican message, a Democrat message, right-wing message, left-wing message. It's, it's just a universalist message. I think there's about 100 million plus Americans today who are hungry for companies that will actually say that out in the open rather than embracing a woke orthodoxy. So I think that there's an opportunity to go sector by sector and take on a Goliath by being the David who, who arrives with that message and steal a million customers at a time. Sure. What I think is then going to happen is that your BlackRocks and your Nikes and your Disney's and your Airbnbs and you know you could just go down the list are going to then wake up and say, wait, on one hand, we just lost a million customers, but then that's going to prompt an introspection and a self-reflection where they say, actually, our approach to diversity and inclusion may not have been as diverse and inclusive as we intended. We might have screwed that up over the last five years. Let's rethink the approach. And I think that's actually going to be a good thing for the country. That's the good version. I think the bad version is we have the right-wing version of coffee, the left-wing version of coffee, mm -hmm. eventually the right-wing version of baseball and the left-wing version of baseball. That could be the beginning of the end of the American experiment as we know it because we require these apolitical sanctuaries to bring us together, whether we're black or white or Democrat or Republican. And that's what I don't want to see. But I think there's a more nuanced version of this, a more universalist version that actually could be a, a corrective force for good. And to be honest with you, in recent months, I've actually started to play more and more of a role mm -hmm. in helping spawn that as an investor and as somebody who's helping get some of these enterprises off the ground because I want to see them do it. it in the depoliticized way. Right. The left-wing version of baseball where the bases are closer together depending on your race. Yeah. And you make right. statements about voting laws that make you yeah. sound more like a super PAC than a sports league. Exactly. No, it yeah. sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah, All right. the hot dogs are GMO-free. What a joy. You know, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You talk about in the book, you say, if you, can claim, if you claim to owe the public everything, you in turn owe them nothing. Mm. I thought mm. that was pretty powerful when you were talking about J.P. Morgan, that these CEOs will kind of come and they will grovel to people yeah. and lie. What did you mean by that? And what do you see that as the, the future strategy of these people well, moving I think, forward? I think that, look, I think that one of the secrets of being a CEO that they don't really teach in business school is that the more people you're accountable to, the less you are accountable to any given one of them. Okay. Well, stakeholder capitalism or so-called woke capitalism takes that to the to the infinite level to say that actually by being accountable to all of society, there's no metric to actually hold you accountable to any one of those actors. And any time that you're actually doing something that betrays the interests of one of those actors, you could just be claiming to advance the interests of someone else instead. It's one of the coups of the managerial class in this country. And I think that's one of the untold stories is really the pan sector rise of a managerial class in America that effectively is like a cancer affecting one institution at a time where the people who are supposed to be the stewards of the essential purpose of that institution are no longer actually responsible for running those institutions. You know, at a company, you have founders, you have employees, you have shareholders, but then you have the rise of this new C-suite hired managerial class that's supposed to intermediate their interests, but in a certain way manages to aggregate power for itself. I think you see the same thing happening in universities too. I mean, I went to Harvard and Yale and whatever, and they were left of center when I went there. They're very different institutions today than they were then, because even if they were left of center, they were classically liberal in the sense that they valued free speech and open debate and a marketplace of ideas. But now you've seen the 
proliferation of these deanships and association, associate deanships and diversity officers, the rise of a managerial class in the university that again has to justify its own existence and ultimately aggregate power for itself. That really sucks the life out of the essential purpose of that institution by empowering themselves instead. I think you see the same thing in government. The biggest illusion that I think the American people bear today is that the people that they elect and put in charge actually have more or less anything to do with the policies that actually get set that affect their lives when it's instead done by an unelected class of administrative states in an alphabet soup known as a government bureaucracy, what we call, I guess, the deep state, just right. like I was talking about deep corporate or deep, deep academia. And I think that one of the roles that wokeness plays for the managerial bureaucrats is it creates this smoke screen, what I call the illusion of blowing woke smoke to deflect accountability for their actual failures in representing and being good stewards of the institutions they're supposed to serve. And I think uh, you know, I think that was actually like one of the underread chapters in my book I, is, you know, what I think I want to say it's like chapter five or six. But I think that that's actually um, it's an un, un, chapter four. It's, it's an untold part of the story. And I think that that's something that has implications that go far beyond just the, uh, you know, just the just the woke issues that I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's hard to. When you when you dive deep into this and realize that the politicians you elect are really not doing what you think they're doing and that there's so much more, the web is so much more tangled, how do you stay motivated in your fight against what's happening right now and the policy that they're legislating for and how it's having an effect on your life when really it's not those direct politicians who mm -hmm. are at play here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a matter of refocusing our efforts towards really winning what is a fundamentally cultural battle mm -hmm. that has... Not, not nothing to do with politics, but less to do with politics than you'd expect. I think the politicians are really just symptoms of a deeper cultural malaise in our country. Okay. The flip side is I think that we're each empowered to change our culture every day through the market behaviors we engage in, through the way we raise our kids, through the ways that we act on an everyday basis, through the decisions we make, whether we're the only person in a room who has a belief that we do. But are you actually courageous enough to speak up or not? That's going to drive much bigger change than who gets voted into a given office on a given day. Or courageous and, enough to see a company doing woke, terrible things and say, I'm no longer going to support this company. Yeah, or, it's very hard or, or for to create someone a competitor to, yeah. or to be an entrepreneur yeah. and actually to seize that as an opportunity. But, you know, like how many I, people I think have now said Coca-Cola, I'm not going to drink Coca-Cola anymore? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, that, I think that, um, you know... I think that that could have an impact. The problem is consumer boycotts tend to be pretty short lived. I think that, you know, um, I'm not a, I'm not a big boycotts person. I am a big seize the market opportunity person. I do think that there's an opportunity to create an affirmative brand to have a product that's just as good that will will involve somebody exhibiting real courage and a risk to take on an industry behemoth. But I think the opportunity is teed up for a new generation of of entrepreneurs to do it. But yeah, I think that the point about shaping culture is that. You know, when you're voting at the ballot box, you're really making it somebody else's job. Yes, you have some agency in casting your vote, but you're making it somebody else's job. And that person only has one toolkit to use, which is like passing a law, right. which is often over-inclusive in certain ways, under-inclusive in others. It's a low-resolution instrument to address a fine-tuned problem. The thing about being able to address it in your everyday, everyday life through culture is, A, it's what matters more. B, you're empowered to do it in the way you live your life every day and the way you interface with the people around you. So I think that's an opportunity and something that actually I find more uplifting than being despondent about the quality of the politicians who really yeah. at the end of the day don't matter very much, in my opinion. Right? It's downstream from culture. Exactly. Yeah, just like yeah, Andrew absolutely. Breitbart says. Absolutely. Yeah, he said that for a long time and I think there's a lot of truth to it. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, uh, Vivek, how can people support you in what you're doing other than buying your book? What other endeavors are you working on? How could people hop in on this? I appreciate it. I mean, I, I do think reading the book would be would be good. I mean, they can my, buy the book too. My, go, my goal. Well, is, of yeah, course, I mean, also buy the book, yeah. guys. <laughs> this isn't a, this is I mean, just to be honest, you know, about it's not a commercial endeavor for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really care about getting the message out there. I am I am looking to uh, you know to lo sort of. I haven't yet pulled the trigger on the on the following, but I'm at, but I'm at the doorstep of it, of playing a role at the forefront of creating this new excellence first economy, mm -hmm. an economy that prioritizes the unabashed, unapologetic pursuit of excellence through the creation of products and services for Americans who have been neglected, which I right. actually think happen to be the majority of Americans. I think that could be a big change in the drive for culture too. So, so one of the things I'm evaluating doing, and by the way, I've loved being in the first year for first full year of my career where I literally didn't have a plan. So I've, I've <laughs> really just been seeing where every next day takes me. Writing the book was my main focus for a good part of, you know, late last year and early this year I've been, you know, hanging out with people like you guys, having great conversations about the book. That's been a lot of fun for me. But I'm, I'm at the cusp of thinking about, you know, possibly, uh, you know, developing some sort of standing presence in sharing my own perspectives. Not, not only these issues, but I think a lot of the cultural questions that we're grappling with in our moment, possibly through a show or something like it. Yep. And to pair that with my role as not just an entrepreneur and a founder, but also as, as a seed investor in backing, I think, the kinds of entrepreneurs and, and co-founding with many of them spawning enterprises that I think can help drive that cultural change. So, uh, so, so I think that stay tuned for, you know, businesses that come out of that, even when I pulled the trigger on that in, in early 2022. But I think that that is going to be a way that it's less about supporting me, but more about, I think, supporting a cultural revival right. that I hope will, will benefit a lot of people and potentially create a lot of real value too. hundred percent, man. You're on fire. Yeah. Thank you guys. Appreciate I appreciate it. it. You guys Thank are on fire. You're like in your, you guys are like in your twenties and rocking this, you know, intellectual breadth and everything in between. I'm impressed. Oh, thank you so much. You we figured really it out young. It. I mean, at Goldman Sachs, you yeah, understood, yeah, yeah, right? Exactly. You know? Exactly. So, yeah. It was a different, different world. Yeah. Different world. Yeah. So, well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks, I appreciate man. It. Appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. All right, everyone. We got Raheem Kassam, who is the editor in chief of the National Pulse, a great publication. Hope you guys are all checking it out, checking out their podcast, his podcast with Natalie Winters. What's going on, man? Good to have you here. Man, it's a busy few days. Thank you for having me. I know. Tell me about it. We're we're filming a lot of episodes for the future, and just there's so much going on right now. There's so much going on. One of the things that that I saw on National Pulse that I felt like I had to get you on. Facebook just admitted in court that its fact checks are just third party opinions. Now this is big for me specifically. Uh, I actually just had posts removed off of Facebook because they said that they were false, and now it's coming out that these aren't actually essentially Facebook coming out and saying, oh, this is wrong. They're, it's merely just opinions, but somehow they still get to ban you from your page, even just based on other people's opinions. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Facebook is embroiled in this lawsuit at the moment, and this is where their lawyers have preferred this opinion that their fact checks in and of themselves are just third-party opinions. Now, We've focused on Facebook fact checkers for quite some time. In fact, we had a little bit of a tete-a-tete -tete with one of their top fact checkers, a chap called Alan Duke over at a group called Lead Stories. Um, he, we've actually interviewed him before and talked to him about all of this. And it's, it's really interesting how this process works. So Facebook effectively contracts with third parties like Alan Duke, like Lead Stories, like this group named in uh, this lawsuit here. And what they do is they go through posts like yours, posts like ours, posts like John Stossel's, who's the lead party in this lawsuit. And 
he brings the case and says, hey, look, you know, you're claiming that I'm putting out fake news. That is defamatory. That is actually going to harm my business and give me a bad reputation, to which Facebook lawyers simply replied that actually their fact checks are not fact checks, uh, uh, you know, as, as we might know them, or you might think they are from using the word fact and maybe the other word check, but they are protected opinions by third parties. Now, these third parties are, are, are groups like Lead Stories. They're groups like Climate Feedback, which is specifically the one named in this case. But there are so many others. In fact, there are 103 verified partners that Facebook uses to help itself, you know, quote unquote, fact check articles all across their platforms. Where it really gets interesting to me is, of course, all of the people, the groups that have been deleted completely as a result of their most recent um, fact check industry, which is the COVID-19 fact check industry. Are they now telling us, are Facebook lawyers now telling us that actually medical terms and medical articles that are removed from Facebook because they, uh, you know, go against perhaps the establishment narrative on certain things. Are they telling us that those are just third party opinions too? Because that will where that will be where it gets really interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's so much out there about you know ivermectin or HCQ or any of those things that at a time, I mean, when you would post about that, you could get immediately banned. PragerU was in Facebook jail for a year for some of the things that we had posted about these different medications. And they just come in and they can just take you away. But now they're coming and saying it's opinion. What is the bigger implication of this in the sense of are these just opinions or can they still, after this case, as you're saying, can they still use these opinions to justify banning someone off of their platform? Well, it opens up all sorts of different avenues now, doesn't it? Because, of course, a lot of these platforms claim to be platforms and not publishers. But what kind of platform that is afforded the, the, the protections of, of, of United States legislation then has third party people, third party organizations in a lot of in a lot of these places, extremely partisan third party organizations. I mean, we did an investigation into lead stories, one of the premium uh, Facebook fact checkers, almost all lead story staff once worked at CNN. Almost all lead story staff uh, don't, that do donate politically donate to Democrat uh, party causes and Democrat politicians. And I'm sure if you go through the same 103 verified partners, in fact, I've just given myself an assignment, that is what we'll do, uh, you will find the very same thing across the board. So it, it's, it's got those Section 230 platform versus publisher uh, uh, implications, but it's also got further implications for other people now, like yourself, like myself, to go to Facebook, maybe take lawyers to Facebook and say, aha, you've admitted here that you're not actually fact-checking anything. So what's with this shield that you're putting up in front of people's posts? You're defaming them by doing so. Their audience might believe them less. Their business might be harmed as a result of it. And you've just admitted that they're just third-party opinions. It's really, it's really fascinating. Yeah. And they want to have their cake and eat it too at the same time. You know, it's, you don't see many of these left-wing pages being shut down or having this false information about it. Even with all the, like, let's say the stuff about Jesse Smollett that just came out, right? All of these people had lied about it or the stuff about Kyle Rittenhouse lied about it, said the wrong thing about it, but you're not seeing fact checks on these people's posts, right? It's only on no, the people I mean, who are conservative. The, the, the independent, uh, I won't call it a newspaper because they don't actually print anymore, it's just a, a website, but the independent, owned by a Russian oligarch based out of London, published that um, Kyle Rittenhouse had murdered two black Black Lives Matter protesters. 
and and just left it up there for for weeks and weeks and nobody challenged them on it facebook didn't challenge them on it twitter didn't challenge them on it they allowed to peddle this information uh uh you know on on mass as a as a as a means by which you know to get these people hurt let's not forget this isn't just some kind of theoretical study they are putting people in the line of fire as a result of this as a result of all of this and now we learn that they don't actually use any real fact checkers here they just use third party opinion so i think they've really opened up a can of worms here i'm personally very excited about it and i'm i'm studying this lawsuit intently to see where this goes yeah but we know that mark zuckerberg himself i mean his foundation works entirely basically to elect many Democrats to office, right? So to think that there is a political bias to this, I mean, it should just be obvious to people. If you don't think there's a political bias to these things going on with the fact checks, I mean, it is clearly obvious. And in more in the political bias, you had an exclusive today, which I heard you, I heard you talking about it yesterday on the war room. So that's why I wanted to bring you on to talk about this was an exclusive new Fauci Zuckerberg emails reveal offer of data reports to aid lockdown policies, vaccine development. So all of you guys can check this out at the national pulse. I, I, we will have it linked down in the description of the show, but for, for anyone else, what, what is going on here, Reem? Well, if you remember, earlier this year, there were a bunch of emails released, a bunch of Fauci's emails that were released. They were foiled, and and we went through them, and other people went through them as well. And what we found was these um, stunning emails um, from uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the the CEO and founder of of, of Meta, formerly Facebook, and uh, they had redacted a bunch of information in there. So we went back to the U.S. government and we said, "Hey." We want more information about these emails. We want to we want to know if more emails between these two had occurred after this introduction back in uh, March 2020. And sure enough, yesterday they came back to us and they said, "Yes, here they are." And so and so, what we did was we went through them and found that actually uh, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, the the charitable or or, or not for profit arm of the whole Zuckerberg Empire, actually offered Anthony Fauci and the NIH data from facebook that's that's people's data your data my data ordinary people's data from all around the world ostensibly and said hey if we can use aggregate data reports um to help facilitate decisions about lockdowns and specifically uh, if we can give you money to help vaccine development then uh, you know you just let me know now that's Obviously, like as as you and I know, that's not unheard of in these in these billionaire circles to be throwing money around. And Zuckerberg's other operations, CTCL, were like the elections last year. We've covered all of it, and we know all of that happens. And your audience probably knows that happens. Where this gets really interesting is Senator Marsha Blackburn actually confronted Fauci about talking to Zuckerberg this year, and Fauci responded that he had no idea what she was talking about. Effectively, he lied. He lied to a U.S. senator. He's lied in the U.S. Senate. We know he's lied to Rand Paul before. But these No, he lied about the lab leaks before, I mean, talking about all that. But this is really interesting to me because now we've caught him because it wasn't just one errant email back in March where he can turn and go, oh, I forgot about that one. There were a series of emails and a conversation back and forth. In fact, Fauci responds to Zuckerberg in this email chain. He says, thanks for the note and your offer to help. I will think hard about ways we may take you up on your offer. So how did he then go back to the Senate to Marshall Blackburn and say, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. It's a lie. And frankly, 
he has to be held legally accountable. Do you think that'll happen? I mean, with everything going on, it seems to me I've been looking at the news recently. Amtrak has just, you know, ended its federal vaccine mandate for its employees, along with Oracle and LAUSD schools just stopped their vaccine mandate for students. It seems like things are starting to get a little bit better here in the States. Uh, People are starting to wake up. When you see this happening with Fauci, do you think something like that will happen? I'm an eternal optimist. So when I wake up in the morning, I see Fauci in my head behind bars, you know, so I, I am an eternal optimist about these things. I understand, you know, that people people can get very frustrated about the, the, the slowness of this stuff. But we have actually made quite a lot of uh, certainly a lot more um, headway into these things than, than Fauci's opponents did back in the 60s and 70s. If you recall, he was he was actually widely panned and rightly so um, by uh, many people in the LGBT community over his handling of HIV. But they didn't get to this point where actually they could see his emails and know what he was saying and understand just how much in the pocket of Big Pharma he was. Now we're getting to know all that information relatively quickly. I, I do say relatively because I know people are frustrated by the speed of this, but I'm an optimist about these things. I think if we keep digging, keep digging, you're going to end up getting these people. The people around him, people like Peter Daszak, who headed up the, uh, the, the, the Wuhan lab from his Echo Health Alliance, another Fauci gave him funding. He's now off the WHO's, uh, you know, quote unquote, independent commission. Another one, Marion Koopmans, we got her as well. So these people are not totally untouchable. And if you, if you dig hard enough, if you, if you, you know, we, we, we work around the clock going through these documents, and uh, I, I genuinely believe that, that somewhere down the line, at least in our lifetimes, these people will be held accountable for their actions. Man, I'm hoping so. It seems tough. I mean, you see what's happening in places like Georgia right now where people are too weak to actually hold people accountable, right? You have people who want to talk a big game and then say, oh, we're going to do something about it, and then they do nothing about it. So I, I really do hope that you're right. Give us some hope before before you go. What are you seeing right now in America? Do you think things are going to turn around? Well, I look at the polling. I look deep into the polling. I look at people's skepticism about um, what this regime right now, and I do not call it an administration, I call it a regime, what, what they're doing, uh, how people feel about the alternatives in the Democrat Party, like Kamala Harris, how people feel about new alternatives that we're hearing about now, the new old alternatives like Hillary Clinton. And then I look at what the political right is doing, uh, you know, wonderful, you know, candidates coming up like like Blake Masters and, and, and other folks like that. And I just, I, I, it fills me with optimism. It fills me with hope. It fills me with knowing that actually what Trump did wasn't just what Trump did. He also paved the way for this new generation uh, of fighters going forward. So I think America has a lot more ahead of it than a lot of other nations. I'm afraid my country, the United Kingdom, actually voted this week in favor of uh, uh, COVID vaccine passports for everybody. So America really does have to fight because it is the last place in the world that has that that freedom at its core. Uh, and I feel, you know, I feel down about where we are necessarily right now, but I feel great hope for the future. And just like Dennis Prager says, America, the last best hope. If America falls, the rest of the world falls. God bless you, man. How can people follow you and everything that you're doing? Well, uh, the nationalpulse.com is the site. We all we have a podcast. People can subscribe to that. And we are 100% people funded. So if they want to help us out, the URL for that is fundrealnews.com. Got it, man. And I got to get you and Natalie on the show, too. I, I'm writing a piece right now about how America shouldn't participate in the Beijing Olympics. And I would love to get your guys' take on all that. Would love to. Anytime. Awesome, man. Thank you. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. We have an interesting guest on the show today, Brett Mauser. You may recognize his face if you follow Project Veritas and James O'Keefe because he's a whistleblower out of San Antonio CBS. Brett, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. 
I want to hop right into it because I think nobody can tell the story of, you know, your whistleblowing and you talking about what's happening in terms of journalism in America better than you can. So what got you linked up with Project Veritas and how did you become a whistleblower? Well, it originally started about a year ago when I was just uh, decided to take one of our uh, our multicultural trainings, uh, which was where they told us not to be objective journalists anymore. <laughs> and I uh, uh, recorded it basically just for posterity and also to be able to bring it as evidence to my, my management to be able to say, hey, look, this is what was taught. Is this appropriate? And and just kind of to, to, to cover myself, to, to have evidence to present. And I didn't even plan on it going anywhere. Uh, and then it wasn't until uh, the, this past election when Project Veritas did a story here in San Antonio uh, about voter harvesting. And they didn't, uh, I sent an email to my manager and said, hey, look, this is going on locally. Is there something that we can, are we going to do anything about this? And about two or three days later, I got a, uh, an email back saying, oh, well, we looked into it. Project Veritas is just a, a right wing organization. This was a hoax. Uh, she was on another channel and said she knew the cameras were there. And I was like, all right. And then two or three months later, she was arrested. And they still didn't do a story on it. So at that point, I reached out and sent them an email. And I said, hey, you know, if I can help out, let me know. Um, and then from there, it just uh, it, it was just a, a, a little contact here and there. And then I wound up uh, having more of the uh, unbiased, uh, the implicit bias training. And I was there ready with all my notes to, to counter the arguments in the training itself. And, of course, they muted our mics, so I wasn't able to say much. Um, so that's basically how it, how it came to be. And I started going in, reporting some of the things that, uh, that were going on, um, getting uh, uh, things like my manager saying things like, uh, you know, when, we, when I was talking about, about masks, you know, and, and presenting uh, that children aren't really, you know, are not affected that greatly by it. And him saying, I don't want to debate the science. I'm not going to debate the science with you. People are afraid. doesn't matter whether it's true or not. <laughs> We're journalists. We're supposed to be all about the truth. Well, I'm glad that you came forward and, and tried to reach out and do something about this because it's so often people like Will and I, we talk about how journalism and journalistic integrity is really no longer intact in this country. But it's so important to hear people who actually work in the field come out against it and say something. Now, you mentioned that one of the higher ups during this training said, you know, journalism is no longer about objectivity. We need to stop focusing on objectivity. Can you add context to that? What did she mean when she said we shouldn't focus on objectivity? Well, there in the project video, uh, Project Veritas video, you can see some of the B-roll and some of the some of the other additional slides that they, that they presented. And one of them specifically said, "Inclusive journalism is not talking to both sides." Uh, and and other other steps such as don't don't seek interviews from both sides. Just look for thoughtful interviews. Um, and then, of course, saying we have to explain the issue so that people understand it, not just present facts. Uh, so it, 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 just the initial statement of saying, well, there's objective being objective is just no longer feasible. That can kind of be taken a little bit differently but when you start delving into the, 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 the slot, the additional slides and the additional bullet points. You see specifically that they're saying that the journalist is supposed to be deciding and going towards a, 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 a biased viewpoint and, and looking at the, uh, and, and the training specifically pointed out social justice and uh, the diversity 
and how uh, if, if you're not paying attention, you're not watching the podcast, then you just don't care. And so it is, you know, they're in plain writing and, and, and not only just writing, but speaking exactly what their new agenda is, that they are pushing an agenda. And that's that was sort of the, the, the tipping point for me, because even about halfway through the training, I was like, OK, well, maybe this isn't that bad. And that's when it clicked on me that they were they were dividing us into race and uh, uh, social economic status and sexual orientation. And they wanted us to list what we thought was most important in order of, the, of, of these uh, these factors. And that's when I realized, oh, this is Marxism. They're teaching us to divide among the oppressor and oppressed. And and that's not where this country needs to be going. Um, and that's sort of that was the tipping point for me because there was there were moments where I was like, well, do I want to do this? Do I want to stand up? But it was that last train that I said, no, I've got to do something because they're dividing this country intentionally. To to what ends? I can only guess. Mm. And for people who don't know where this is, where did this happen? This was in San Antonio, Texas. Great. One thing that you were talking about with James O'Keefe while you were in your. Uh, when you were talking with him, was about history and you were talking about Russia. Now, I'm reminded about the Russian newspaper that was literally called Pravda, which meant truth. And basically, the entire thing was full of lies. When you are seeing things happening right now in journalism in America and seeing analogies when it comes to Russia and other communist countries, what does that look like for the future of this country? I think it's, uh, as a history buff, I think you have to look at those events and realize that we're on the same road. Uh, I, I just watched a documentary about about Greece and the Battle of Thermopylae and how the country, you know, the, Greece was just a bunch of tribes and a bunch of small little communities. But when they had, when, 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 when the Battle of Thermopylae happened, it brought everybody together and they were now Greek. It wasn't this, this, this community, that community. And the exact same thing is happening in reverse now. They are splitting us into groups so that we're easier to defeat. Uh, we're no longer Americans. We've got to be this community, that community. And there's no, they're, they're trying to break away that pride of being an American and, and putting labels on us. And that, that, that fractures the, the, the morale and the ethics of the uh, of the country, and that eventually will lead to our downfall. Just the way you see in Venezuela, just the way you saw in Cuba, just the way you're seeing it in Russia, and it is that that end goal, I believe, which is which is trying to bring down this great great experiment that is the democracy of America. One thing that I hear a lot when talking to people about this kind of stuff and kind of what you were saying when you were like, oh, maybe this isn't that big of a deal. When you talk to people who are on the other side or maybe who are these people giving this type of presentation to you, they say, well, this isn't that big of a deal. You know, you just have to get with the times. This is what's going on now in America. Okay. These old things that we used to do in journalism, they're outdated and now we're working on something else. When you hear the argument from people where they say, this isn't that big of a deal, what do you respond to tell them? Well, uh, I'll say two things to that. I, I had uh, uh, confronted a reporter, or no, I'm sorry, a fellow uh, fellow promotions producer after the training and said this was Marxism. And he was like, well, I just don't see that. And my response was, well, just because you don't see it doesn't mean that's not what it is. By definition, that's what this is. The sky is blue, the grass is green. 
this is Marxism. Uh, but I do also tell them, you've got to look back at history. Uh, the, the, the infamous quote, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. And we're seeing that time and time and time again, especially when, 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 when it blows my mind that people can just push Venezuela out of their mind and not see the same things are happening. Uh, of course, you have the, 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 the infamous Einstein quote. You know, if, you, if, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, then you're, that's, that's the definition of insanity. And that's what socialism is, is they're trying to do this over and over and over again, and it doesn't work. And the way they lead, the way they get through to Mark, to the, through the soci socialism or communism is this Marxist doctrine of separating and dividing people and, and making one person, you know, one group of people, the, the fall guys, the bad guys. Uh, I try to emphasize history. You know, I, I, have a, I have a YouTube show as well and always bringing in history to prove the point. Um, it doesn't diverge. The, you know, the, 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 the path is constantly always the same. And to think that, well, this time will be different because I'm in charge or this person is in charge is just pure egotism. You know, it's, it's, you've got to understand the way people are and, you know, humans are going to human. And that's, that's the, uh, understanding that and understanding history can help you avoid these pitfalls and can help think, help prevent America from falling down the same path as a Venezuela or a Russia. Yeah, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but Albert Einstein also said that mediocre minds will always try and destroy people who think outside the box. And that seems very indicative of the same place that journalism is in now. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Brett, I have one more question for you because everybody is so scared to come forward. They're scared to be the whistleblower. They're scared to be you. Uh, what has been the response to what you've done? Have you gotten support, hate? How are things at work now with, with who you are and what you've done with Project Veritas? Well, I'm no longer at Ken's. Uh, of course, there were there were uh, vaccine mandates and all that stuff, and and I I needed to get out. My family um, uh, has some health issues, so I wanted to devote some time to them. Um, but in terms of the fall the fallout, um, of course, when when you're when you're thinking about doing this, all sorts of things are running through your mind. Oh, it, it, what's going to happen? Am I Am I going to lose friends? Am I going to lose family members? And overall, it's been the support has just been incredible. Uh, uh, even even former uh, former reporters and anchors have contacted me and thanked me for what they did because they left the news industry because of this very thing. So there has been a great amount of of support. Uh, there, of course, are the naysayers. There was uh, within five minutes of it coming out, there was a YouTuber calling me an old white man that was scared of. Uh, uh, scared of someone who didn't agree with them. And anyone who's seen my show knows that that's completely not the case. I love debate. I love, I love arguing and I love talking about uh, uh, alternate opinions. Um, and of course, you know, Tegna, the, the, the station, uh, the, the corporation that owns Ken's and all the other stations came out with their, their, statement which basically doubled down on it and said that i was the reason that they needed this sort of training uh and, and then they said that i wasn't even uh, news personnel and but it's it, when, when i'm able to come on to play you know uh, shows like yours i can just rebut that and and debunk their their accusations and whatnot so i do recommend that if you feel cornered and that you do 
want to speak out and you see things like this happening, do it. It's not as bad. The, the fallout is not as bad as you think it is. And, and there are so many other support structures there. Uh, there are other other whistleblowers and other insiders that, that are there to support you and, and give you the, uh, the advice that you need. And it, it, it's a great, great community. And, and I, I don't let fear keep you from 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 speaking out the truth uh, that was one of the reasons that i had to do this is i i looked down the road and i said this is where we're headed i don't want to be watching the train cars go by and not have done something and this was this was this is what i felt was was something that i could do to stand up and try to prevent that from happening amen well how can people keep up with you brett uh, well, I have a website called notsosane.com. Uh, I uh, uh, try and uh, uh, teach people how to make films with no money. That was that was sort of my uh, my pet project, um, and that's uh, I have a show where I try to teach people about the, the things that go on behind the scenes of, a, uh, of an independent film, so they can be prepared and and help them know that they don't need Hollywood. They don't need to go through. The Hollywood politics and all of that. You can just make your own movie, and uh, that's uh, I'm not so sane.com. I have uh, a lot of our episodes there, and of course on YouTube, uh, we have our series not so at not so sane one uh, on YouTube. So great. Well, we appreciate you being on, man. Thank you for your insight and for being brave and sharing this and standing up for truth. We need more people like you, man. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you.